Um, I want to start with a story which actually is, is quite old. Um, I was at a 21st, so you know this is a story from over 20 years ago. And this girl who was quite a tomboy played, played violin, did all like normal things, but then also had this crazy tomboy streak where she would be talking rugby, but like at a level of like, yeah, oh, the driving mall's letting us down today. You know, the way Dwayne's binding is just not good enough. And you'd like, where did this come from? At her 21st, I found out. She stood up and she spoke about her relationship with her dad. And she said, you know, dad, I'll never forget the 1995 World Cup final. It's the only time in my life I saw you cry. And I said to myself, if rugby makes you cry, I want to find out about rugby. I want to I know about my dad. Like, what is this thing that makes him cry? And so she studied rugby and became like a rugby guru. My question to you, the answer to her dad was rugby brings me joy. Rugby makes me celebrate. My question to you is, what, what, would, what would move you the most in life right now? When do you celebrate? Think about those moments. And while you're thinking about what it is that draws you to celebrate, I want to tell you something about myself as a pastor confessing this morning. I am terrible. I am terrible at celebrating. The chapter we're going to be looking at in Nehemiah 12, I've entitled, the, is, is the Holy Celebration chapter. We're going to look at a group of people celebrating, but I am terrible at celebrating. There's like an irony that I'm the one talking about this. I thought of a couple of reasons why I'm terrible at celebrating. The one is, I often put my head down, I graft hard, and I think at the end of that, I don't almost have energy to celebrate. I kind of just collapse and go, okay, I'm so glad that's over. I've... I've I've earned my keep, and there's almost no energy left afterwards. There's little sense of wonder or amazement. I remember qualifying as a chartered accountant, writing my, I forget how long it was, five-hour exam, I think, on my 25th birthday, and then months later, you get the result. And honestly, it was more just relief. It was just like, I'm glad it's over. I think I hung up with my parents. We had dinner. You think your whole life, oh, when I become a seer, I am going to lift the roof. But when it happened, I was like, ah, Relief. I also think I struggle to celebrate because I'm a little bit cynical. You know, when you have your birthday and then you go, okay, tomorrow it starts again, 364 days until my next birthday. You win the World Cup, it's like, great, four years' time, we're going to have to defend it, right? Something we can feel in our bones right now. Cynicism and just a, a lack of wonder. Is there something you might be leaning in that we can celebrate that lasts forever, that can never be taken away from us? Something that truly gives fuel for the rest of our life. I believe as a church that there is something as good as that. And welcome to guests that are leaning in. This is what we're going to be talking about. And can I say for us, this isn't an optional extra. It's not like, oh, maybe I'll think about celebrating at some stage in my life. I'm just, I'm just not there yet. I'm going to say to you that it's a big deal. Richard Foster wrote a book where he calls celebration one of the important disciplines that we need to develop in our lives. It's not an optional extra. It's a discipline we need to develop. And he says the following. He says, perhaps the most important benefit of celebration is that it saves us from taking ourselves too seriously. It is an occupational hazard of devout, devout folk to become stuffy bores. Celebration delivers us from such a fate. It adds a note of gaiety, festivity, and hilarity to our lives. And all of us stuffy bores are like, prove it. <laughs> and after today, we are going to have a, a bulk of time of responding in worship. I'm trusting that we're going to be able to flex our celebration muscle. So we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 12, and um, there are three things I want to draw out. The first thing, as we look at a group of people celebrating, is they had a reason to celebrate. So this celebration was based off good news. And I want to confess, I haven't always been terrible at celebrating. I remember 
Leanne, when we were dating, she was a student, and she was tutoring someone for maths, and I knew she wasn't earning a lot of money as a, as a tutor, but she said, hey, when I got my um, master's in theology degree, she said, no, we need to celebrate, Paul, I'm going to take you to the rotating restaurant, you know, at the top of the Ritz there. It's tragedy that it no longer operates. We can't go back. But I mean, this was Lonnie. This was bigger than the spur. I mean, we're hitting the spur nowadays with our three kids. But in the old days, we were, we were at the Ritz celebrating on the rotating restaurant paid for by my student uh, girlfriend at the time. I remember just celebrating that. And what made the celebration deep was it wasn't just like, oh, let's do this. It was like, there's a reason. There's something there. It gives you a reason. Now, it's the same for them. What was their reason? Let's read Nehemiah chapter 12 from verse 27. They say, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they had finished the building project. They had a reason to celebrate. They had seen God's grace manifested in their lives. They'd overcome incredible obstacles. If you're a guest looking in here, let me quickly summarize a few. They'd been taken away for 70 years. They had got the courage to journey back a journey of over a 1,000 miles, like Cape Town, Joburg style. They had the resources given to them, which was a miracle. They had their enemies taunting them, saying a fox could jump on your rebuilding project and would collapse under your, your feet. There's the threat of violence, and now they've finally moved in, and they've finished the temple, they've finished the wall. And they're saying, God's grace has been so good to us. He has been so good to us. We want to manifest that to the witnessing world through celebration. They finally finished the wall. And I want you to just jump ahead to verse 43. It'll appear now on the screen. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That word joy, I mean, comes up over five times alone. And if you actually put the grid of joy on and you reread Ezra and Nehemiah, you start to see that it actually comes up all the time. In Ezra 3, at the foundation of the temple, when they laid it down, they had a celebration and they went for it. And a whole bunch were celebrating. Quite interestingly, do you remember, some people were grieving because they were like, oh man, this temple's smaller than the last one. They were old enough to remember the big temple and they were like, guys, I know you're celebrating, but we're weeping actually. And you couldn't hear who was crying, who was weeping, which we'll notice is actually a bit of the characteristic of the walk with God. There are going to be tears of joy and tears of sadness in this life. But in Ezra 3, they celebrate the foundation of the temple. Ezra 6, the dedication of the temple. They, they, they celebrate with joy. Nehemiah chapter 8, they read the law of Moses. And as a response, the people celebrate with great joy. And there's that memorable line, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. I won't go through all of the festivals they celebrate, the festivals of unleaded bread and booths. But at every significant point, let me just summarize. They want to mark the occasion by celebrating with joy. And now it's climaxing as they've finished the war. The lesson we can learn from them is if you take the grace and the goodness of God seriously, you're going to manifest that through the discipline of celebration. And can I say that for all of us today as Christ followers, we've been made in the image of God, and part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The Westminster Catechism says, like, what's the purpose of life? Like, what's the meaning of life? Their one line is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Okay, Paul, what does it mean to be someone who glorifies God. To glorify God is to lift him up and honor him in all that we do. To say he's the source of life, he's the end of life, he's, he's the middle, we want to lift him up and honor him in all that we do. We also have a reason to celebrate, and that is that we've been made in the image of God and we've, and we've got a, a purpose to glorify him. It doesn't just come out of uh, a building project to repair walls, it's, it's all of our lives now, 
building with God the kingdom of God in Seapoint as it is in heaven. Let's read from a couple of verses to remind us that this is a constant call to us. Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, glorify God. Point back to God. Allow him to be the focus so that you can make the most mundane thing incredibly glorifying to God if it's done with holy intent. But we're not just called to glorify God and make him the focus. We're also called to enjoy him forever. Uh, James, who was Jesus' brother, said the following. He said, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Good gifts have been given from above. Enjoy the gift of life. In this city, we are a lot more fortunate to be able to enjoy the gift of life. Namibia is beautiful. I mean, the celebrities all go there to enjoy the dunes and all that, the quad biking. So Namibia, you're also in a good place. But I don't want to mention other cities in our, in our country that suffer when it comes to being able to enjoy good and perfect gifts. Gifts like food, like sex, like beauty, like friendship, like nature, like art. Enjoy the good gifts that God has given. Acts 14, I love this. It says, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Enjoying God, celebrating God is a form of worship. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I've tried to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. Learning to glorify God and enjoying God in all of your life will help you find joy and stability even in the chaos of whatever's happening. Now, because this is something I find particularly hard, this will be the longest point of our time together this morning because I've really had to think in my own life, why do I struggle with this? I mean, I can read all those verses like we have and I can kind of clear, yeah, I've, got, I've received so much, there's so much, I should, be, I should be good at this. And there are a couple of things that I've thought about. The first is that sometimes we can be a little bit dishonest with our hearts. When we feel far from God, we don't feel that he's good. We have this little process, which I could almost call spiritual bypassing. When your heart isn't in a good place and there's a blockage, what a good doctor sometimes has to do is he has to bypass. He has to make another way for the blood to kind of make it. And in a, in a, in a Christian community, we can start to act like that ourselves. We can, we can face real disappointment, real pain, and then we can almost be encouraged like, Fake it till you make it, man. Just have faith, you know. Claim it. And you bypass the wound that you feel and the pain that you feel. And you don't actually bring it properly before God, as the psalmists would encourage us, and have an honest with God conversation. I thought of an illustration of this. Um, Kylian Mbappe, there'll be a photo that will come up now, is a very good soccer player. And he was invited to the opening World Cup match between France and New Zealand. And as you can possibly pick up there, Killian is looking slightly confused about what just happened as France touched down for a try. The guy in the front there is opening his mouth wider than I've ever seen. Everyone is going absolutely blistic. Killian doesn't understand rugby. He's a world-class soccer player. And what was quite funny about it is he stands there, like, doesn't know what to do. And then about a second later, he raises his arms. And he's just, like, walking around going, I think this is what I should be doing. The point is that in different ways, we can sometimes be encouraged to do the same. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why everyone's, I'm just going to blend in. I'm going I'm to fake it till I make it. And you run out of fuel pretty quickly if that's your approach to life. 
I think that's what God calls us to when he talks us to live a life of faith. He, he wants us to be open with him, to be honest with him, to not bring a quick fix bypass, but actually say, here's the blockage, God. I need to hear from you. I need to know your goodness. I need to know the good and perfect gift you have for me. John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York, has helped me think about our message for today. And he puts the following um, kind of timeline down. On the one side, you've got beauty, and on the other side, you've got affliction. He says, this is actually what the human range of emotions can take us along. If we're honest about life, we'd say there are moments of incredible beauties, the sunsets we've been having this week. And then there are moments of just incredible affliction. Right now, conflicts going on around the world, earthquakes in Afghanistan, in the Middle East, our, our, our um, shul just down the road with high security is what's happening in the Middle East. There's, there's, if you're honest about life, right now in this moment, incredible beauty as we see little Stain Jr. and just incredible pain and affliction if we were able to talk to one another about what's really happening in our lives. And in light of that reality, what we can sometimes do is we can just try and insulate our hearts. We can try to protect ourselves. And what he refers to that as is the middle, the middle. We don't want to live on the edges. We camp around the middle. Life often conspires to keep us in the middle. We're afraid of pain, and sometimes we're just too practical to entertain the idea of beauty. And so we stay in the place of duty, obligation, and expectation, where your heart is managed, but it's not moved. The middle where you slowly are formed into just a compliant citizen of the world. There's a fascinating article that became a book of a hospice nurse who, who met with people as they were passing on, and she would talk to them. And she said the number one thing that came up in most people's lives was that they said, I lived the life others expected of me, not the life I wanted to live. That's across, you know, all kinds of faiths and all kinds of things. People say the number one regret is I lived the life others wanted of me, not my own. A life of duty, obligation, cultural expectations, reasonableness, things that you should do, things that you have to do, and dreams that you park because you say, oh, it's just not practical, or oh, it'll, I'll do that later, I'll do that later, I'll do that later. The middle is a place where we become gray. And it can happen to Christ followers. Paul, writing to the Galatians in chapter 4, says to them an interesting thing. He says, what happened to your joy? What happened to your joy? You lost your joy. Outwardly, you might be doing all the right things, but you're totally lacking in joy, a heartfelt delight in God and all his works. You got stuck in the middle. I can get stuck in the middle. I think you can get stuck in the middle. A reality check of this is just to ask yourself, how regularly do you find yourself complaining about things, being quick to kind of go, oh, that person or that thing? When I'm my least joyful, when I'm stuck in the middle, I find myself incredibly critical. I'm pretty sure it's probably true of you. And if you layer in the sort of South African air we breathe, we can often add an extra layer of just cynicism into it. If you're a guest here this morning, we should be some of the most joyful people you meet. Really, we should be. We've got the reasons to be joyful. We shouldn't be stuck in the middle. But yet we can be. What are we really called to? In Romans 12, we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're called out of the middle of self-preservation, living our lives for the eyes of others, into a space of saying, because I've received God's love, I know I'm known, I'm loved, that his kingdom is advancing through my life, I can get to the other side of me and I can start living for others. I can enter into a world of wonder, delight, defiant joy, gratitude, whimsy, risk, exploration, and play. Because I know that 
this is God's kingdom advancing. But at the exact same time, I know that I live, because I know it's true in my own heart, at a time where sin and selfishness and, 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 and um, grief will abound. I go out into the world knowing that I will experience pain. I will experience grief and loss and illness and depression and suffering. What's it? Uh, separation and addiction and need. It's a vulnerable place to get to. But can you see that if you want to live in the middle, you will not have a celebration muscle, but neither will you easily be able to mourn with those who mourn. The call to all of us is to open our lives up to life. And why don't we start this week? Why don't we start this week by saying, who can I join in, in their joy? Who can I see that's actually having a good time? Who's just been promoted? Who's, who's done something worthy? Why don't, why don't I raise a toast to them in life group? Why don't I buy them a meal and find out more about it or write them a note? Who can I recognize? Who can I rejoice with today? But then also this week, maybe ask yourself, who can I join in with their tears? Who is it who needs some comfort, some solidarity? Someone maybe just to sit with them in silence. Disrupt your own agenda. Move out of the middle. Life is waiting for us there. And it's hard because it's not just we can all slide across. Sorry, the next, the next um, slide. We can't just slide across to the beauty one and go, okay, Paul, I'm out of the middle. I'm living beauty. <laughs> like, that's where I want to hang out. Because that's not reality, man. That might be Instagram vibes, but that's not reality. The reality is if you put your heart out there, you are going to have to embrace both joy and grief. We saw it in the Nehemiah passage where they put the foundations, Ezra, sorry, for the temple, and some were crying joy, and some were crying tears because they were like, it's not as big as it used to be. It's a reality of life. But can I tell you why Ezra and Nehemiah could celebrate now, why they could draw attention to the fact that the temple and the wall being finished was so good. Why they could was because they knew that that meant the true David could come. The Messiah could come. They knew that this made the way for Jesus. They didn't know when he was going to come, but they knew that by reestablishing Jerusalem, the, the Old Testament prophecies could come true again. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are saying, we have a reason to celebrate. We have a reason to get out of the middle, and it's because a Messiah is coming. And we have the same. We have Jesus. We might have some of it now. We might have some of it later, but we have all of it in Jesus. So for holy celebration to take place, we have to have a reason to celebrate, and Jesus is that reason. The next two points will be a lot quicker. If we are going to be a people... To celebrate, let's learn from them. We're going to need to prepare to celebrate. We're going to need to prepare to celebrate. If you've got a wedding coming up, if you've got a, a, a like we did this morning, a moment, we need to prepare for baby dedications and things. We need to get ourselves kind of in that posture. Think from verse 27 what they did. They, at the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with symbols harps, and lyre. Essentially, what's happening is they're saying, let's go fetch the, the party people, DJ Levite. And they're getting all the instruments together, and they're saying, we need to be disciplined in this. We need to be disciplined in this. Richard Foster, who I've quoted already, says, especially for people who live in the city where there's lots happening, lots of people, he says, the hardness of life is going to find you. The, the, the hard things, the grief, it's going to find you. 
But beauty is something you need to cultivate, something you need to go after. Do you have a preparation mindset when it comes to celebration? Do you, do you plan it? Do you, are you disciplined in going after it? Do you look for the delights of a plain skis bagel on a Friday or, or a walk on the prom? What is it that ignites in you a spirit of, of celebration? But they were very intentional about it. We can read on. It says, and the sons of the singers gathered together. They got the singers together from the district surrounding Jerusalem, from the villages. You can read them there. They had to go on a bit of a travel expedition to go fetch the people. Like, we need the party people. We need the singers. It took preparation. Verse 30 says, the priests and the Levites purified themselves. And they purified the people and the gates and the wall. We don't know what this involved, but this is kind of a setting apart. Going, this time is going to be separate. A wedding is always a classic song. I did a wedding yesterday, so it's foremost in my mind of just the bride and the process. I was given the run sheet by the wedding plan. I think it started half past seven of like hair and makeup. And I mean, this is the whole thing of saying, I'm about to enter into a space. I want to purify. I want to set it apart. I want to be, I want to be consecrated for it. And I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went south on the wall to the dung gate. What these guys did is they said, our enemies used to tell us if a fox jumped on the wall, it would fall off. And they're like, uh-huh, we're not even going to put a fox on it. We're going to put two choirs. And they're going to meet at the same spot. And one choir is going to go south. And the other choir is going to go north. And we're going to meet at the temple. And that's where the party's going to be. Verse 32 tells us that they went, um, after they went, Hosea and half of the leaders of Judah they're the names. You can see Ezra is in the mix. Ezra is part of it. And there's a whole bunch of them. We can read verse 36 that the relatives were involved. Shemaiah, Azrael, Melatai. You can see all of the people. Ezra the scribe went before them. I also want to point out that they managed to get some instruments. Where did they get the instruments from? From David. They, they'd collected up their, their, their history and their story and they were going to have a party. Verse 37 says that the fountain gate, they went straight up before them by the stairs of the city of David. They ascend to the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. Verse 38 says the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people. So now Nehemiah is getting involved. Ezra's going south. Nehemiah is going north. He gives you a little bit of a road map where they went, the tower of ovens, the broad wall, the fish gates, the tower of the hundred. You'll see the sheep gates. Verse 40 says, so both the choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of the Lord, and I and half the officials with me. And then we skip along to verse 43. It says, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. They needed to prepare to celebrate. They had their choirs set up. They were very methodical in who did what. They had the musical instruments. They marched a set circuit, and they came back together. And guys, they weren't being forced to do this. It's a little bit like telling our kids, guys, this week after church, you have to have Dairy Den. You have to walk across and choose between an ice cream or a donut. It would be ridiculous, right? There's no kid going, ugh, you know? They wanted this. This was something deep inside. They'd moved out of the middle, and they said, we want to have the, the life of adventure where we're going to be simultaneously grieving and simultaneously celebrating. We, we're going to be trusting God through all of it. They weren't forced to do it, but they prepared accordingly. Can I ask you, when does your preparation muscle get activated? When do you get a sense of, okay, it's time to, you know, is it, is it that big work meeting? I mean, these are all good things to get prepared for, by the way. Um, hosting a group of people. Uh, the big match, what, what is it that gets your attention and that makes you prepare? 
I trust that something of your time with God and something of your walk with God is, God, I'm going to need you and I want to prepare my heart so that when I'm with you, I'm not faking it till I make it. I'm not killing and bumping it going, hey, like, I, I want to come to you with what's really happening in my heart. I want to share with you the griefs, the pains, the celebrations. I want to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with this. I want to prepare well coming into your presence. Every Sunday you have an opportunity to do that and every, every Wednesday as we gather in life groups or Thursdays if that's your night. I worship night this Wednesday as a night. I trust that we can come prepared for. We can say, God, we trust in you as a community as we come to hear from you and celebrate you. Final point is to keep the celebration going. Keep the celebration going. The choirs have done their thing. They've made their way around. What were they singing? We don't know, but I think I could pick up a little bit of the lyrics. Psalm 48 would have been a good one. This is David writing. He says, walk about Zion. It's written years in advance. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. That could have been one of the songs they're singing. And they're going walking around. They're saying, what we'd love to do as a group of people is pass on what we know about God's goodness to the next generation. It's kind of interesting that you've had a party, you've had musical instruments, you've had the party people, DJ Levites, you've had a whole celebration, and at the end of all of that, the climax of all of that, we're going to read out the end of the chapter, they say, let's get organized. Kind of like, what? <laughs> like, is that how you end a celebration? They say, yes, this has been so good, this has been so life-giving, we want to pass this on to the next generation. And can I say that speaking to a whole bunch of C-pointers who I know well, we must be one of the most anti-institution people I know. We just, it's just not our vibe. Growing up in the southern suburbs, people often think are a lot more institutional and in the sense of going, no man, I'll volunteer for that, I'll do that thing, I'll do that. Coming across this side, met incredibly talented people and generally the vibe is like, yeah, I could do that, but uh, I'll, I'll check in with you later. They're incredibly talented, gifted people, but generally are saying, I, I'm, I'm not that into institutions, I just don't dig it. And that, interestingly, I mean, it plays out at Camps Bay, the school, I'm the treasurer. When you look at the majority of the parents, they're self-employed, right? They're just a lot of people that, that do their own thing and make it happen. And, and, and it's just a noticeable difference. But what's fascinating here in Scripture is this is a group of people who said, no, if we want the celebration to go to the next generation, we better get organized. It's great to listen to Tim Keller podcasts. It's great to have coffee with Christians. It's great to do all those things. And we probably need more of those things. But if we take that and replace the church with that, and we say, that's how I, I do the God thing, I think we miss the opportunity to serve the next generation by creating on-ramps and opportunities that they can get to know the Lord as well. Let's read. Verse 44 says, On that day men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruit, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, added to the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. In order to keep things going, they got organized. The best way to pass things on to the next generation is to be strong families, yes, but then to build institutions as families. 
And of course, the church, which is what this people would in time become with Christ as the head, is so much more than an institution, but it's not less than that. It's, it's a body of people, brothers and sisters. It's a family. It's a building. But it's a group of people saying, I'm going to exist to be on the other side of me. And all those one another's that I've been called to do, to rejoice with one another, to weep with one another, I'm going to do with a group of people before a witnessing world to show them what the kingdom of God looks like. So... We're going to have a time of rejoicing and celebrating. I'm going to call the band up. And can I remind us that we have a reason to celebrate? We have a reason to celebrate. Uh, they'd finished their building project because they wanted the Messiah to come again. We, we know that the Messiah has come. We have Jesus Christ who didn't stay in the middle, right? He, he was afflicted on the cross so that we could experience and gain access into the beauty of God's presence. Jesus prepared to come. He prepared for that glorious resurrection moment. From, from right at the beginning of creation, he knew when he was born that he was born to die. And he walked that road of preparation. And, and finally, he made it possible for us to keep celebrating because he's provided his Holy Spirit. And he said, I am I am the head of the church. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, there is something better than 1995 Rugby World Cups, although Stransky will always be a hero. There's something better than reunions with people that we haven't seen in a long time. There's something better than resolved conflict that eventually you find each other and you can laugh and joke having been in conflict for a long time. There's even something better than graduations. So Jesus Christ moved out of the middle for us. And he died, was afflicted, so that we could experience the beauty of God. Let's glorify and enjoy him. And Jesus Christ, if you'll stand with me, I want to read this last verse um, over us from John 16. Jesus is uh, moments away from going to the cross. John 16, verse 20. He says the following to his apprentices. He says, very truly I tell you. Jesus is incredibly realistic. He says, you will weep and mourn. While the world might rejoice, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy.